0: This is the first of our series of Stem Cell Podcast episodes from ISSCR 2020 virtual. This time we're talking to Dr. Madeline Lancaster. Hey everybody, this is Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Arun and I were fortunate enough to attend the 2020 ISSCR annual meeting that took place virtually from June 23rd to the 27th. It was a great meeting with some exciting research, and we're bringing some of it to you today in our interview with Dr. Madeline Lancaster. But for those of you who weren't able to attend, we've got you covered. Throughout the meeting, Arun and I released our first ever stem cell podcast video series discussing our favorite research presented daily at the conference. To hear our thoughts and watch us in all our glory, visit www.stemcellpodcast.com ISSCR2020. As mentioned, today we have Dr. Madeline Lancaster from the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the University of Cambridge. She's on the podcast to discuss her research into human brain organoids that she presented at this year's ISSCR. But before we get into that, are you looking for more information on organoids? Download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques. Developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing, this essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered download your copy at www.stemcell.com/organoid ebook you guys today joining us we have madeline lancaster for the first in our series of interviews based on the ISSCR 2020 madeline is group leader at the mrc laboratory of molecular biology in cambridge and her lab has developed cerebral organoids as a model system to better understand human brain evolution, development, and neurodevelopmental disorders. Dr. Lancaster, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks a lot. It's really great to be
2: here. Well, Madeline, the timing is perfect to have you here on the show since your lab just published a paper in Science describing CNS barrier-forming organoids with cerebrospinal fluid. First of all, congratulations. And Thanks for sharing it with the world at ISSCR. And the fact that you can actually produce these choroid plexus organoids that not only have an active CNS barrier, but also little bubbles of cerebrospinal fluid is absolutely mind boggling to me, You know, pun intended. I've got a lot of questions. So one, how did you develop and optimize this protocol? Was it just a happy accident and byproduct of your other differentiation protocols? And two, now that you can make these the cerebral spinal fluid in a dish. Is there any interest in mass treatment and using these organoids as say, mini factories for the fluid? So talk a little bit about the next steps.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so like so many things actually in my lab, um, yes, it did sort of come out of a bit of a happy accident. We found that uh, occasionally um, our organoids that we were generating that, that make sort of generally four brain identities including like, for example, the cerebral cortex, um, and the choroid plexus being part of that, um, that sometimes they would just make a huge amount of choroid plexus and then end up forming these big sort of sacs, you know, with, with fluids. And so, um, a, a postdoc in my lab, Laura Pellegrini, um, decided to take that and see if she could get it to happen sort of more purposely and, um, or purposefully, I should say, and um, and, and, and generate these uh, organoids reproducibly. And that's exactly what she did. So she developed a method. Um, modif- it's a modification of our existing forebrain organoid protocol and just really nicely, robustly forms these, these tissues, um, batch after batch, different cell lines. Works great. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they make a lot of CSF, actually. It's really uh, exciting stuff. I tried to see if there was very much interest in, you know, therapeutic uses, for example, um, for CSF made in a dish like that. Um, I don't have a whole lot of connections with clinicians, but it seems like for the most part, people usually have the opposite problem of having sort of too much CSF, so so people have to go in and kind of, you know, remove it. Um, there aren't that many conditions where you kind of need more CSF, but where there there are those kind of conditions, it seems like you can kind of get away with a, a sort of artificial CSF and that kind of works okay. But I think we also just don't really know that much about our CSF in general. And I, I bet that it, it actually could have some uses, but we need to learn more about more about it and, and about its normal functioning, I think.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I was really... Overwhelmed and, and and interested in the the functional element of the of the cells that you guys made, and you know the core plexus being a near neighbor to the blood brain barrier. I'm really interested in endothelium, and the blood brain barrier is another specialized cell type. In this case, as I said, vascular endothelial, that is at the brain interface and selectively permeable to to circulating factors. Um, So uh, not really focusing on that, aside from that particular subset of endothelial cells, how important do you think uh, vascularization more generally, um, how do you think, how important do you think that'll be for the study of neural organoids in vitro? And I'm sorry, but a couple like follow-ups to that or to be more specific, does it even make sense In the absence of a functional conduction system, to like try and like perfuse an organoid with like in vitro vasculature, or is it more like the paracrine, so-called angiocrine factors from endothelium that may inform higher differentiation in neural organoids?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail perfectly on the head for me there, because um, there's a lot of groups interested in trying to vascularize brain. And I, I think that that would be a really big step, um, th- a direction that we need to go, definitely. Um, but it is it is also a problem that has been around for a long time um, in tissue engineering. Tissue engineers have been trying to vascularize tissue constructs for decades. And it, it I don't think it's convincingly been done yet. Um, you know, there's a, re- a reason that, for example, cartilage is one of the only Tissues that uh, can really be made and additioned, uh, and that's because it's not vascularized. So once you start to get to bigger tissues, you really need to get vascularization in there. And the, the issue there is that I think a lot of people focus on just the endothelial cells, and then sometimes they maybe, you know, get a little more complicated and put in, for example, you know, parasites. But um, f- there's a lot going on there that that isn't incorporated, and that includes. Fluid flow, and you need to have some sort of blood substitute in there. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that you've got to actually accomplish there. And I, I don't think that, um, I'm not sure that this is a problem that, that I will be able to answer, or even really um, the brain organoid field, or even the organoid field in general. It's something that's going to require a lot of um, collaboration. It's going to be, it's a really big uh, question, I think, that needs bioengineers. Um, developmental biologists and organoid people, stem cell people, all coming together to, to try to solve this.
2: Yeah, it's really going to take a team effort to figure out this vascularization issue. But that's not to say these organoids aren't you know, already very powerful. And over the last few months, there's been an explosion in using some of these organoids to study the mechanisms of COVID-19 infection. That's actually a pretty hot topic right now. Uh, for example, Daylon's <clears throat> Daylon's colleague, Shubing Chen, over there at Cornell, published a stem cell study infecting different organoid types with SARS-CoV-2. And my lab actually just published on infecting IPS cardiomyocytes too. So it doesn't seem like COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 affects the brain too much. And perhaps it's reflected in the the lower levels of neuronal infection by SARS-CoV-2. But you actually presented some data at ISCR showing that portions of your cord plexus organoids may be more susceptible to infection. So talk a little bit about the rationale behind using those organoids as a new model to study COVID-19.
1: Yeah, so it came about, um, again, it wasn't really something I was planning to get into, but um, there have been a lot of increasing reports of neurological complications in patients with COVID-19. And so, you know, we had all this single cell RNA-seq data from both, um, uh, you know, Cortical organoids with really just sort of cortical identities and our choroid plexus um, organoids. And we just kind of checked the data to see if the receptor for um, COV2 was there, ACE2. And what we found is um, that for the most part, so I don't know, it was like something like 99% of the cells didn't actually seem to be expressing very much ACE2. But there was a specific subset of choroid plexus cells. That expressed it to quite high levels, and um, so we decided to look at those a little bit more closely. And so the the data I presented at, um, at ISSCR um, was where we actually um, characterized those cells a little bit more. We did some staining to sort of confirm the ACE2 was there, and we couldn't see specific staining in neurons in our organoids. And then we uh, used pseudotyped virus containing the um, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, and just you know, put that on different organoids, organoids with cortical tissue, including neurons, uh, neural progenitors, and 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 astrocytes, and also um, choroid plexus tissues, and found that it seemed to only infect cells of the choroid plexus. And so um, we're doing a lot more experiments on this. Um, for example, we're going to be starting to do some experiments with live virus. Um, we had to wait for our uh, CL3 level uh, room to be up and running to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to see if this is, you know, if this if this is true also with live virus. And what it would suggest, though, is that um, neurons are probably not very susceptible um, to this virus, and that maybe the neurological symptoms that patients have are probably more, um, more uh, indirect effects um, of uh, infection of supportive cells. And this could be it could include the choroid plexus cells, but also, for example, the endothelial cells of the blood-brain barrier as well. And of course, the, the, the complications that we're seeing in patients are things like stroke, um, which you know you might expect would come from a, more of a more of a, a complication involving the blood vessels. Um, and also, I, I think it's interesting to note that um, I've been in contact with a number of pathologists, and for the life of them, they just can't find the virus in the brain. So I don't think that it really does, uh, effectively, um, uh, infect the brain. But I think we do need to do more, more research in that area.
0: Yes. Uh, so they only gave you 15 minutes there in your talk and between the cord plexus and the emerging work with COVID, there wasn't enough time to talk yeah. about other, another major end point of your research, which is the understanding and perhaps treatments, uh, of neurodevelopmental disorders. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, how you apply organoids or your other technologies toward those ends?
1: Yeah. So um, my lab is kind of, um, we are primarily interested in pretty basic biology questions, to be honest, Um, trying to understand what are the biological mechanisms that are, you know, at, you know, basically, are responsible for things like brain size, our unique brain size, our the complexity of our of our connections in our brains, and also, um, and then sort of taking that to how are these processes then disrupted in neurodevelopmental disorders. So, to be honest, I think we're still trying to figure out just the, the normal <laughs> development, and there. So most of the projects in my lab are looking more at um, uh, things like evolutionary questions, uh, comparing organisms from different species, for example. And what we're finding is that um, when we look at candidate evolution genes, for example, most of them are actually mutated in patients with neurodevelopmental disorders. So that's kind of how we end up studying neurodevelopmental disorders, is from sort of a more basic biology standpoint. But of course, you would expect that, if, you know, candidate proteins involved in human brain evolution and function are mutated, they would cause neurodevelopmental disorders. So I think we'll probably get some insight there. Um, but I think we also first have to just understand how it normally develops.
2: Yes, yeah, they're certainly so powerful when it comes to studying the basic science of neurodevelopmental um, defects and so on. But, you know, outside of the basic science, there One of those technologies that really captures the public's imagination, these brain organoids, in part because we've all seen examples of science fiction where so-called brains are grown outside of the body. And of course, this is far, far, far from reality right now when it comes to brain organoids and referring to them as brains in a dish is probably very unreasonable, but it certainly makes for a fun discussion about the bioethics of next generation in vitro models in neuroscience. And the technology is advancing really rapidly. For example, the multi-system assembloids that Sergio Pasca's lab is working on. We've talked about those a lot on the show. And you're one of the world's experts when it comes to the science of brain organoids, but are these bioethical considerations something that you think about a lot when you're writing your papers and talking about your science? Or do you try to leave the ethics to the ethicists and just kind of focus on the work?
1: I don't think it's a good idea to leave the ethics to the ethicists. I do think that we scientists should get involved, and so I have been getting involved. And I, I, it's you know, I've been more involved with the ethicists sort of over on this side of the pond, to be honest. So I've got a colleague in Oxford, for example, that I've been I've interacted with quite a bit. Um, I do think it's really important. So basically, I think this this topic is one that's existed in ethics for probably since. You know, probably even the ancient Greeks thought about these kind of things. Um, it's only sort of these brain organoids that have made it seem like we might be close to it in reality, at least to the ethicists. I think that us biologists, neurobiologists who are working on these, I think we we sort of know that we're still really far away. We're just as far away, I think, as we were 10 years ago, to be honest. Um, and for example, i've I've spoken to neuroethicists about um, you know what's the difference between having neurons in a three d context like we do in organoids versus having billions of neurons, let's say, on a two d surface connected with each other. And it really shouldn't matter much because organoids, although they they're closer, they're still not an actual brain. Um, so in reality, having neurons, you know in this context or that, they're not they're not more or less like a real brain. It's just because they look like a three d sort of blob that it becomes something that's that sort of captures our imagination more. and that includes the imagination of neuroethicists is what i is what I think is going on there. So, I think it's really important that we, as the biologists who are working on these things and actually understand the neurobiology and what it really means, so yeah, I think it's important for the biologists to get involved and explain the reality of where we are with these things and what it really means to have a functional neural circuit that's actually capable of things like cognition or consciousness. Um, because we are really far away from that. It requires things like, you know, proper organization. It requires, um, you know, input, sensory input. Uh, functional output, the ability to interact with the environment. And, and let's face it, I mean, a functional brain isn't it, a brain is not functional in a vacuum by itself. It's got to have a body. Hmm. That's just the fact. So it, at, at this stage, I think we're well away from it. Um, but I recognize that it's a very interesting topic and something that um, that's worth that's worth also also thinking about ahead of time. So we don't end up in a situation where we've crossed an ethical boundary.
0: Yeah, just stay on the ethics for a minute, and and I want to preface this by saying that I'm no, like, journalist or anything, but the last I could find, it was a bit over uh, four years ago in uh, February 2016, that the Home Office uh, announced publication of new guidance on use of animals containing human material. And this was this was five years after the working group published, like, a final report. With the policy recommendations so there was like a five-year latency and then the home office was like okay um so things move slowly and justifiably i'm with you on that uh we got to be careful but now less than five years later the possibilities for in vitro and again i'm also with you in terms of like they're not brains um and we're far away from brains but still the possibilities now less than five years later for in vitro neurogenesis may have surpassed our expectations. I think it's safe to say that uh, in large part due to you. Thanks a lot, Dr. Lancaster. You put us in a pickle. But do you have any scientific stake in this? And in other words, like are you considering any chimera work um, and or something related to chimera that falls within that rubric? Uh, And whether or not you do, can you share your thoughts on how you envision neural organoids being applied in animals across species lines
1: yeah so everything I just said about the ethics I think applies to the the organoids when they're by themselves in a dish I I do think that once you start transplanting them you have to think a little bit more carefully about the ethics because now they're in the context of a body and they've got that sensory input and they've got that functional output I still think that transplanting for example in in rodents that's been done so far is is probably still you know pretty safe in terms of you know what are you going to end up achieving there i don't think you're going to end up with a mouse that's suddenly able to talk and think and you know be you know have human consciousness Um, however you know there is other chimeric work going on uh, particularly you know more earlier in development so blastocyst complementation where you know people are trying to introduce human cells into for example Pig blastocysts and replace uh, organs that way, which has really great implications for, you know, organ transplants. But we have to be really careful there because I think if you did end up with a human-sized brain, well, so a, a human brain tissue that could reach the size of our brain, which is really what makes us special. I, I always keep coming back to size. Size is so important. And if you could end up with something that's the size of a human brain in a pig, which could support that size brain, I think then you've got you've reached a, a real ethical uh, issue there. I would be very, very concerned about that kind of thing. Um, your question about whether I have any stake in this, I actually don't. We're not doing any sort of transplantation stuff. Um, I think uh, most of the questions that we're interested in can so far can be answered, uh, you know, staying in the confines of a dish. And um, and so I think, you know, even, for example, the vascularization question, uh, I, I'd rather see that solved still in a dish rather than involving, you know, host uh, vascularization and such if we can.
2: Yeah, it's so important to have these, these discussions about the bioethics of these organoids. And it's part of the reason I'm really excited to be in this field in stem cell biology is because it's it's not only important to have these discussions, but it's also fun. You know, it's fun to have them. And it suggests that our technology is really making a potential uh, very important impact. So it's it's really fun to have these discussions. But moving outside of the science, talking a little bit more about your path as a scientist, you've been quite a world traveler throughout your scientific career, starting in the us with your phd at uc san diego and then later on you moved on to europe to do your postdoc in Jurgen jurgenopoulos lab in austria before starting up your own lab there in the uk and you're not the first american scientist that we've talked to who's actually ended up leaving the states to start a lab abroad and traditionally i think american scientists have tended to stay in the us to start their own labs but more and more trainees and young pis are starting to do their studies and starting to start their careers overseas so Tell us a little bit more about your road in science. In your situation, was it always the plan to start your career outside the U.S., or was it more of a circumstance and just chasing the best opportunities? So uh, tell us a little bit more about your road.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I think So I remember when I was defending my Ph.D. in San Diego, and my committee asked me where I was going to be applying for postdocs, and I told them, and all of the positions I was applying for were in Europe, actually. And this was a deliberate decision. I had ended up in San Diego. Uh, essentially, all my friends in San Diego were European, and that included my now husband. So it was mostly a personal decision to come to come back to Europe for him, basically, for, so it'd be you know him coming back here. But anywhere in Europe, we were happy with anywhere. And um so I applied all over the place. And I remember my committee told me that it was going to be career suicide if I left the u s. And um, it's not obviously. I'd like to point that out. <laughs> I think um, it's very funny because when I started mentioning the names of some of the labs, including Jürgen Knoblich's lab, they they said, "Oh yeah, it's a great lab." <laughs> well, you know, it's in Austria, you know, <laughs> or you know, this lab is in London or this lab is in Germany. So I, I think it's I think there's a uh, an assumption that all the greatest science happens in the United States, and there is, you know, probably it's true that. The majority of great science does happen in the United States, but there's a, a not very far behind group of scientists also working uh, and doing really amazing science abroad, and it's happening all over the world and and you know even places where I think people used to not consider uh, doing good science are now um, you know churning out really really great quality science. So. And then I think after I left the United States, I, I did actually think about coming back to start my lab. I almost started my lab at MIT, actually. Hmm. Um, uh, this the reason I ended up in Cambridge was was actually because of the LMB, because it's a really special place uh, that uh, you know allows me to focus on the science and um, you know it's just, it basically it's a very privileged position where I don't have to apply for grants or teach. So I'm just focusing on the science and uh, and that's that's a really special opportunity
0: yeah i just want to elaborate on that whole u.s centrism centrism there um i mean it is it's a reality not just in science but culturally i think uh being in the u.s you start to think that it's the world uh and i you know i like to think of myself even as a as a cultured worldly uh, individual, but the reality is for better or worse, I spent my entire life in New York city. Um, so while I've been smugly convinced that my worldview is like virtuous, uh, this past few months, year, even the, the years leading up to it has sown many doubts. And it seems like you were born an expat in U S and have now returned home. Um, but nevertheless, having been born, actually, were you born in the U.S.? I think you were born yeah. as an American. Yeah. Having lived outside your point of origin for such a long while now, is there anything else I think you've kind of alluded to it, but is there anything else about the American worldview or approach either on a on a scientific or a cultural level that you think is worth revising?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean um so I'm from Utah, so it's like as American as you can get. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't grow up with um, with many international friends or, you know, even, I mean, pretty predominantly just white American over there. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess it was, I think it's probably because I went and did my undergrad in LA and got exposed to all these different cultures. And so I would say that if you grow up and you, you spend a lot, a long time in a big city like LA or New York, I do think you are probably more worldly than maybe Salt Lake City. But, um, but yeah, it's funny because now that I've been away for so long, I've been living in Europe now for 10 years and I, 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 I don't quite fit anymore in the United States, I've noticed. When I go back and visit, there's funny things that I sort of forget that, oh, wait a second, that's that's how it is back home. Um, but I'm not sure. There's also things that I don't quite fit in here as well. So I'm sort of this funny, I don't know, nationality that doesn't fit anywhere anymore because I've been living in too many different places. But it's also been really great because I've met a lot of other people like me. And we sort of have made this, this funny international group of friends who um, uh, sort of take the best of all our different cultures, I think, and, and create this, this community here. And that's one of the great things about Cambridge and about, I think, academic uh, cities like that, where, you know, it becomes this mishmash of different cultures um, with everybody offering having something different to offer.
2: Well, science is certainly an international effort these days and you and I'm sure your lab are, you know, terrific examples of that. So thank you for joining us here on the podcast, Madeline. And before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. So starting off, what non-science book are you reading or that you've read that is really great and that you want to share with our listeners?
1: I don't think I have a specific book except just to say that I keep re- reading and rereading just all of Kurt Vonnegut's books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's basically, I recommend any of his books to anybody. I recently discovered his short stories, a collection of his short stories, and I just love the sci-fi stuff that he, that he wrote. And even though it's many decades old, uh, some of this stuff really gets you thinking about things even happening now. Yeah, so not a specific book, but obviously, if, if anybody's not read Slaughterhouse Five, then you need to <laughs> read that right now.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, it inspires creativity. All those books, I think, they get you thinking in a different way that, like, I mean, it really suits a scientist well. And that gets us maybe to our final question for you, which is if you could share, I mean, I'm sure there's been a few in your experience, because every time you look at, at these things in the microscope, there must be a, a lot of. Uh, gratification and seeing how how it's recapitulating these developmental processes but share with us one of your like aha moments like a, a real um milestone in your scientific experience that uh, was a, a watershed yeah um well i mean
1: i think it would have to be probably the first time that uh i managed to to make uh, what we now call cerebral organoids at the time they didn't have a name it was i was doing my postdoc and i was um I was actually initially, so the the initial experiments I did didn't even end up in that paper. Um, I was playing around with mouse cells at first um, and just sort of taking mouse embryos and taking the embryonic neural tube of the mouse and dissociating it and putting it in matrigel. And uh, I mean, the the self-organized structures that formed, it was just so amazing. These these little neural tubes just reforming from single cells that I had just taken away from the mouth. Of course, in retrospect, you know, now that I've read the literature much more, I realized that actually decades ago there were people doing this with uh, embryos, actually, and putting them on the chick chorioallantoic membrane because this is before they really knew how to culture things very well and matrigel didn't exist. So, you know, organoids have actually been around for, you know, since probably the 50s and 60s, but they just didn't have that name and uh and sort of rediscovering that uh, you know completely naive to it that was uh, yeah i mean i still vividly remember looking through the microscope and seeing these little fluid filled lumens and the neuroepithelium just forming really nicely right around it
0: wow i love all those every time i hear one of those i get a little shiver i can only imagine what a thrill it was for you thanks for sharing that uh and thanks for joining us again this is a really great chat and uh We'll let you get back to it. Go back to work, Madeline.
1: Yeah, <laughs> thanks Thanks a lot.
0: All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our first ISSCR 2020 episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview notes from this episode. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at infostemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We'll have another two of these ISSCR 2020 episodes coming up in intervening weeks and also our regularly scheduled interviews with roundups. So stay tuned, guys. We got a lot of action coming in the next few weeks. We'll see you then.